Good morning, Sanctuary family. Uh, We wish we were face-to-face with you on this Easter morning. Um, In a way, it feels like Lent is just being extended because we love greeting each other, seeing each other. Something about physicality that's so beautiful, so sacramental. But we trust that you're doing well. And uh, we'll still talk about the resurrection today because this is the day when the church remembers what happened. This resurrection moment we heard about in our gospel this morning is where Christianity was born. It turns out that Christianity isn't just a religion of ethics and rules and beliefs. It certainly has those. But Christianity is all about this moment. It's about the resurrected Jesus. Listen to Paul on this point. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 13, If there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, he says, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, listen to this, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all people. It's a stark comment made by Paul where he's basically saying the resurrection is at the very center of Christian faith. If it isn't, our faith is worthless. Um, where it's futile and we're to be pitied. (laughs) The thing that makes Christianity is what he's saying. What makes Christianity Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus being alive after dying is what gave birth to Christianity. After this resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples physically. He speaks directly to them. They see him. They touch him. Peter writes later that we did not follow these cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but he said we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. Today, his resurrection allows him to be present in our lives, in the lives of people who still experience him. We actually experienced the resurrected Jesus Christ in 2020, not because we go and visit an empty tomb or because we have a vision of Jesus. I mean, some do have visions, but but it's because he makes himself known to us vis-a-vis the Holy Spirit. This faith we embrace, again, it's not just a commitment to certain doctrines or ethics or belief um, or to particular practices, even though all those things are in it. The whole of our faith really can only be understood in the light of resurrection. This is why Easter is the high water mark of the Christian calendar. This is why the church celebrates Sabbath on Sundays and not Saturdays. That was a Jewish tradition. The original Sabbath rest appeared after the first creation was finished. But the resurrection was the start of a new creation, and it begins in rest. And so Jesus becomes for the church the Sabbath. And so Sunday is our day. Resurrection has this language about it that leans into this notion that it's a creation. It's a creative event. Um, 
And it uses creation language. We see this on the day that he's resurrected. This is in John 20. It says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked, the fear of the because of the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. How cool. After he said this, he showed them his hands, his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. <laughs> this, this is hugely significant for them when he says, Receive the Holy Spirit, because that was creation language. I mean, to speak of the Holy Spirit in this way was the language of creation. We see it in Genesis. You remember right at the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Whenever the Spirit is present, there's creative energy. The Holy Spirit was there at the first creation. And now, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Spirit is also present, released on the world again to make all things new. It's the dawn of a new creation. And it's out of this knowledge that Paul writes, that famous text in 2 Corinthians, most of you can probably quote 517, therefore, if any person is in Christ, he or she is a new creation, a new creation. The old is gone, Paul writes, the new has come. So here's what's critical for us. When the disciples wrote of Jesus in the resurrection, they weren't just being historical you know, historical or uh, biographical, um, they were thinking of the, of the reality, the belief to them that Jesus was still alive and that he had been elevated to the right hand of God as, as Lord, as their Lord. They believed he was still involved with them, even after they couldn't see him, through the life-giving spirit. And as such, he was, Jesus was powerfully present among them. They believed that the power that was released at the moment of resurrection was a power that continued to be present in Christ. The resurrection wasn't like a, a flash bulb that sort of sparked or just popped and then gone. But they saw it as a power that was like a power plant, right, that comes online and it stays on. It's a power that keeps flowing and can be plugged into, right? This is how they saw the resurrection. Paul says as much to the uh, Ephesians church. This is in Ephesians 1. He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you can know something, he says, to, that you would know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul writes in other places that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead moves in our bodies, moves in our lives. See, they believe that this power, this power of resurrection, carried the promise of transformation for the fallen world. <laughs> a transformation that would triumph over evil and overcome what would have otherwise overcome them. They believed that the resurrection afforded them the opportunity to become participants in a new day, the new creation. They knew the essence of Christianity 
whole idea of Christianity was rooted in the resurrection. Paul cries out at one moment in the, in the New Testament, I, oh, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. See, our faith informs us that Jesus Christ rose from the dead 2,000 years ago and that he continues to live, that he is sitting at the right hand of God in some dimension we don't understand. And we have to ask ourselves, do we believe that? I mean, what if it's true? And if it's true, is it informing me? Is it giving shape to how I live? Paul said that this idea is what is to give shape to our lives. He said in Colossians 3, since then you have been raised with Christ. See, his resurrection was ours in, in the thoughts of theology from the New Testament. He says, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God right now. Set your mind, he says, on things above, not on earthly things, for you have died and with, with Christ, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Now, there's a couple of things I want to point out here from this text. First, note that Paul says our hearts are not supposed to be settled here on the earth. I mean, we can be thankful for things. We can appreciate things. But we're not to so fall in love with things that we lose our perspective of where our home is. Paul actually uses the statement in one of his writings that we're citizens of another place. In a way, we're dual citizens, right? Or we're dual realm, double realmed people, because our life is with Christ and God as well as being here on this planet. Augustine, in the fourth century, talked about people who loved their homeland. And he said if they were journeying out and they remember their homeland and want to get back, he said they would have to go by sea or go by land. And he said it would be silly or foolish for someone to start going journey back to the homeland that is his or her delight and to so get involved in the scenery and in the places that they were passing through as they traveled back that they stayed and didn't go to their homeland. There would be something inappropriate about that, something that they that was off about that. And he uses that to say, our lives are in Christ. Our homeland is God. And we can certainly enjoy the journey, but we should never make the journey replace where our hearts really belong. John says this in 1 John like this. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, and he's talking about inappropriately, love for the Father is not in them. Because he says, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God or thinks about God's perspective lives forever. So in one sense, this idea of being connected to the risen Christ sets our hearts in another place, not away from this place totally, but not totally in this place, right? Uh, the second thing I want to point out from the Colossians text is this statement that Paul makes that's shocking, really. He says, for you died, <laughs> and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I mean, what does that even mean? It means that in some strange way, we've already faced death in Christ. That is why we don't have to fear death, because Jesus carried us into his death, and he found a way out of the other side of it. So our faith screams at us 
This life we live right now is only part one of a longer journey, which means we don't have to fear leaving this place. We don't have to fear death. Listen to this wild claim from Hebrews about this. The Hebrew writer says in chapter two, since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Listen to that. He's saying that somehow through the death of Jesus and how he conquers death coming out the other side, he broke the power of the devil in the way that somehow our lives are held in slavery because we're afraid of death. If we don't let this thought impress us, we will freak out in the face of loss and death. We will love this world so much that if anything looks like it's touching it, we'll panic. Now, I'm not suggesting we should be okay with death, right, or deep loss. I mean, there's something shocking about that. And in the presence of loss and death, there, I mean, there certainly is stillness, not, a, not of rest, but of a kind of poised, anxious sorrow. And when we look at loss and death, I think that, um, and, and especially in this context of what we're walking through, is I know some of you have had lost friends and some parents loved ones. And it's, it's horrible. And, but at the same time, what I'm suggesting is that even though you must sorrow and even though you must grieve, and even though it's heartache, it's not the end. That's why Paul says that we don't grieve. We grieve, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope. And we should not get so freaked out about loss that we try to hunt for every possible explanation that might give us control over it, right? I mean, it, we naturally try to do that. When we are afraid, we often don't think right. We, um, we use wrong judgment. For example, one wrong judgment uh, that has been emerging during this coronavirus is some want to assign causation from human sin. They want to say that God is judging us, that what's happening is a punishment or a warning or a sign of God's anger. But thinking that the coronavirus is a judgment of some kind is really a failure of good judgment. Because when you try to find oversimplified explanations of causation, I mean, it may be very, very, very human to do so, but oh, not so Jesus-y. Um, you remember the story when they, the disciples and Jesus came across this guy who was blind in John's gospel, and the disciples assumed that he was in the condition he was because of God's judgment or God's wrath. And they asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Um, it's just what we humans do, right? We want to know why. I think sometimes we want to know why because we want to see if we can prevent it, right? If we can find out why, maybe we can change outcomes. But Jesus doesn't answer the why or who did this. He, he basically just answered neither. Neither this man nor his parents are the reason for this. And then he proceeded to focus on what should be done in the face of problem, of the problem they were facing. So when people go to the uh, question, who sinned to bring this pandemic upon us, and then they start throwing up suggestions of groups that maybe they're most offended by, the abortionists, the atheists, those gays, right? The greedy Wall Street people, whatever they come up with. I think Jesus still answers neither 
None of those folks are responsible for this situation. And to try to ask if this is the judgment of God, I just think it's the wrong question. It's not how Jesus approached such things. In fact, it's actually anti-Jesus to think that way, anti-Christ. But the impulse to discover the why runs so deep in our culture. And, but, but I think these, are, these questions are knee-jerk reactions in our Western mindset that just simply demands everything must have an explanation. But what if that isn't true? I mean, the right question is not, is this judgment? But how can we carry right judgment as we act in response to what's happening? I mean, how can you and I discern what is the right thing to do? I think that's the question we're supposed to be asking. And here's what right judgment looks like. At least I think it does. It's, I think it's right judgment to wash your hands, <laughs> to not touch your face, to practice social distancing, to not congregate with too many people, to wear masks if you're out and, and about, and to, uh, you know, for added protection. I think it's also right judgment to care for the sick. Gail and I are constantly moved to tears as we watch the stories on TV or hear from our some of you that serve in, in uh, the stories that you have that are serving in the medical field, that the perseverance, the sheer courage that you have. So many sanctuarians serve in this capacity, and we thank you. I think it's, I think it's right judgment to work for the good of others. I think we need to thank all the grocery clerks and delivery people and the pharmacy staffs and the people who prepare our food. Thanks to all of you. So many show up even as they carry the anxiety of, of possible exposure. If you're one of these folks and are a person of faith, let me encourage you, obviously be vigilant to do your best to be safe, but also trust God to protect you beyond what you're doing. It's a great text in the Psalms that says that some only trust in chariots and horses. That's all they had. But he said, we have more than that. We have more than chariots and horses. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. And I think you should have your chariots and horses. You should wash your hands. You should do social distancing. You should do all their stuff, all that stuff. But when you do it, don't just trust in that. Trust in the Lord. I also think it's right judgment to pray in this season, to pray that this pandemic ends, to pray for cures to be found, to pray for the sick to be healed. But we don't pray because we fear loss or fear death. We pray because we believe there's no situation too difficult for Jesus to make new. We pray to encounter the resurrected Jesus and to ask him to enter the situations that we face. We're still realists. I mean, we keep in mind that it may be a while before this situation ends, and it may be some time before cures and therapies are found. And we also keep in mind that not all that we pray for will happen. Resurrection victory does not mean we get all that we ask for in the time period or the timelines that we want. It really means nothing ultimately wins except for the resurrection. Somehow, through the resurrection, all the pain that we taste, all the loss that we experience, it may come, it may ravage us, but we recognize this is only part one of our journey. And it doesn't, loss and death don't ultimately win when everything's been said and done. There's a new creation at work and it will eventually swallow death. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said there's a time coming 
when he said, the perishable will be clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And then Paul states, where, O death, is your victory? In a mocking way almost. Where, O death, is your sting? One day, death will be gone. Pain will be gone. So friends, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed.